Hello and welcome to the Cheerleading Junkie. I'm your host, Jill Markley. Joining me today is maybe one of the most experienced and qualified cheerleading experts I've ever had a chance to speak with. Joanna Cuthbert is not only a coach and former program owner, but she's also coached the Team England Adaptive Abilities Team, also known as Team England Paracheer, to Worlds in both 2016 and 2017, just to name a few of her incredible accomplishments. She is also currently the chair of the National Governing Body for Cheer in England, and she is the owner of Squad Safe, which is actually what drew me to interview her in the first place. Welcome to the show, Joanna. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I love your podcast, and um, yeah, looking forward to doing this. Great, thanks. Um, I always like to start with a little background on guests I have on my show. And while I mentioned some of your impressive accomplishments so far uh, in cheer, you really started in dance. Isn't that correct? Yeah. So I trained professionally as a contemporary dancer. I went at 18 to a professional dance school and was training there vocationally to become a dancer. And that's what I thought I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Um, And then midway through my training, I sustained an injury, which I was told at the time would mean I'd never be able to dance again. And through a series of very random events, I ended up working in television. And while I was working in TV, I was working on a show. I was working on a dating show where they, we had this idea, Hey, wouldn't it be funny? Or one of the researchers had an idea. Wouldn't it be fun to do a cheerleading date? We could send them on a date where they have to make up a cheer for each other and they have to maybe learn a routine. And then they were like, Oh, Joey, you, you used to be a dancer. You could go along and try out some of these teams, see what they're like, and if they're any good, we'll use them to film. Well, we never ended up filming a cheerleading date, but the team that I went and tried, um, secretly tried out for, asked me if I wanted to be on the team. <laughs> so I kind of ended up... I, so by this age, I was quite old for a cheerleader. You know, I was like 20 um, when that happened. And so I moved quite quickly from that into coaching um, because a lot of the the athletes that I was training with were you know 16 15 16 years old and I was older and I was encouraged to do that so I I got into cheer in a very random way through through that kind of route Um, and I then went back to dance and I did a a postgraduate training in community dance practice so alongside being a coach for a long time I was working as a dance artist but working in communities so I would go and work with um in like kind of inner city London areas with um hard to reach kids um or I was working with um I worked on a project um with um hard to reach like young men getting young men into dance um and dance and disability was um my specialist area of postgrad which kind of probably makes a bit more sense when we then talk about some of the later stuff that I've done yeah yeah that's really interesting um and, and of all the ways I've heard people get into cheer through a dating <laughs> show, it's got to be the most unusual. So. Yeah, it was fun. I have, yeah, I blame that TV company for a lot. <laughs> <laughs> all right, great. Um, so I understand that your paracheer team was like one of the first ever of its kind to showcase at Worlds. So I, I really want to hear about that experience, but can you talk through what a paracheer team is and, you know, the um, adaptive abilities area, just in case there's someone that Yeah, doesn't... absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, so adaptive abilities is the division at ICU, um, which is an integrated division. So it is disabled and non-disabled athletes competing together on a team. And they have a median and an advanced um, division levels for it. Um, And 
way back in 2015, um, the ICU approached one of my ex-athletes. When I first started a team in London, I had an over-18s team. Um, and I had an athlete on my team. And he, unfortunately, um, through an accident at work, became disabled um, and a wheelchair user and was looking at ways that he could keep cheering in his chair. And he'd become something of an internet sensation um, as wheelchair partner stunt. And so ICU approached him and said, we're looking at applying for Olympic um, membership status. As part of that, we need to look at what our Paralympic provision would be. Would you be interested in helping us develop that? And um, Rick Rogers, who was the, the athlete, um, asked a number of people, including myself, with my experience in dance and disability and integrated practice, whether we would be part of a, a pilot, essentially, to see whether it was possible, like what, what was possible to do with um, a group of um, disabled and non-disabled athletes together. And so ICU essentially said in 2016, if you bring a team, um, and that team was Team England, if you bring a team and we showcase that team and it's successful and everyone thinks it's, it's possible, we will launch it as a competitive division in 2017. So in 2016, it happened very organically. Rick and I were pulling on people that we knew. I mean, we obviously had a lot of friends already with disabilities. The team is very mixed. There's not a classification system for it yet. So um, we had um, athletes with limb difference, athletes in wheelchairs, athletes with visual impairment, um, deaf and, and um, hard of hearing athletes. It was a real mix. And adaptive abilities is a really great way to describe it because we were, were adapting stunts. We were saying, okay, well, this is what a full-up looks like. What does a full-up look like if one base only has one arm? How do we cradle if one person is in a wheelchair and they can't move fast enough to get out of the way? So we were literally kind of playing around and making up how, how, what it might look like and how it might go. And, and so one of the uh, criteria in that scoring is around creative adaption of, of skills. And so, yeah, so I had the privilege in 2016 of, of being with the team to go out to uh, Worlds um, and showcase it. And it was incredibly successful. And so they opened the division and, and we went back in 2017 um, to compete against other um, nations in that division. And um, yeah, very excited to say we've been winning gold medals since then um, and I had the privilege of, of managing the team in 2017, which was was great to be with them for that first first competitive year. Yeah. yeah. How amazing just to be able to introduce something like that. You know, I think it's so valuable because just because a uh, person is injured or, you know, disabled, it doesn't undermine their value as people. Right. And so you're giving them this great opportunity where they can still be a part of a team and they, you know, can still do things like that. So I think that's really. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think it's um, when we talk about um, disability, quite often, the, the language people talk about, oh, people disabled and people with um, ability, most of the disabled athletes have way more ability than me. Like they are <laughs> incredible athletes. And, you know, that it's, I think um, people um, misunderstand, you know, this is a competitive division and these guys are incredible athletes. Um, we just look at a stunt in a different way. Um, I think I think one of our coaches on our team in 2018 said he'd reckon he reckoned he'd figured out 32 different ways to do a full up as a result of being with wow. <laughs> being with this team. So, you know, it's an exciting place to be if you want to be challenged. Start an adaptive abilities team. Yeah, yeah that's, that's amazing. That's 
Awesome. And um, just one more question about that is, do you mix um, developmentally disabled adults or is it all like physically disabled people? So at the moment at ICU, there is a special athletes division, um, which is in um, partnership with the Special Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is the adaptive abilities division. At the moment, the adaptive um, the adaptive abilities division has quite a wide um, criteria in, encompassed in um, what it uh, classifies as disability, and that's because they want to encourage countries' participation, um, and they don't want there to be any barriers to that. Um, but we are anticipating, as we move towards Olympic and Paralympic status, that um, there will be some kind of classification system that comes in and that it is most likely the Adaptive Abilities Division will focus on um, physical and sensory impairments rather than um, intellectual and special educational needs because there's already a provision mm-hmm. for that. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Thanks for that clarity. I also mentioned when we started this that you're also the national chair for England. And so I'm just kind of wondering, how does that come about and what does that even really mean? for your country and for cheerleading in general? Yes, thanks. Good question. (laughs) Um, So we have had cheerleading in England for about 30 years. And it started essentially with um, private competition companies um, developing their own coach education programs so that they could create coaches that could make teams that could come to their competitions. (laughs) So it had its own kind of private ecosystem Um, And it continued that way until about 15 years ago when some of the competition event providers got together and tried to establish some kind of national governing body. Um, In England, in order to be recognised as a national governing body, there's some very specific kind of codes um, for governance and regulation. Um, And it was deemed at the time that because they had lots of commercial conflicts of interest, actually they weren't the best people to be leading the sport. Um, And so... Nothing happened and we all just carried on completely unregulated, um, you know. Um, And then when um, some of our more prominent programme directors got together and formed a unified Team England to take it to the ICU World Championships about six um, years ago now, the ICU said, it's great that you keep coming and winning gold medals, but you need a federation, (laughs) Um, you know, and that was part of their criteria in order for their, you know, all of the... Um, legislative stuff that they had to do. So some of those original um, programme members that were in charge of Team England were sort of charged and supported by ICU in going away and developing a federation. And at the time, I'd been a coach, I'd been an athlete, I'd been a programme owner, a gym owner. um, And I'm sure like many of your listeners, I'd be one of those people who'd been like, oh, I wish this was better wouldn't it be better if this was more effective? I wish we could do this more. And I just realized when this appointment came up that unless I was prepared to stick my head above the parapet and actually say, I'm prepared to do something about it, that I could no longer <laughs> keep complaining about it. Um, right. And I had um, some criteria, some um, experience by that time in working with boards. A lot of the dance companies I'd been working with had been charities and I'd been answerable to or reporting to or sat on boards of trustees. Um, And my other main concern at this point was we we have 89,000 athletes in the UK, which I know is much less than in the US, but it is a huge percentage of, of young people in the UK in what is essentially 
an unregulated sport and I have a real passion for safeguarding. And my feeling was, if I want to be involved in getting this sport regulated and particularly around regulating safeguarding, athlete welfare, child protection, I need to put myself forward for this job. But when I was appointed, uh, we were essentially starting from scratch. It was like it was like building a startup company. Um, we had no formal structure, um, although the the government here has some very kind of specific criteria we're building to. So we're in the middle of developing good policy framework, um, regulation, talking to our government, um, and essentially, yeah, learning from from what's gone before us um, and where we need to be going and and. And we hope that in January 2022, we will be submitting all of our um, paperwork uh, to Sport England, which is the national um, governing body for sports in England, and that we will become formally recognized. Wow, that's really exciting. And I had no idea that you were basically starting from scratch like that, so building process and procedure. That's like overwhelming I think at times it must be right I mean it has been a real baptism of fire because about two or three months into the role COVID hit and so the government in in the UK said well no sport is allowed to return and do any activity until you produce they called it a return to play guidance document so basically like a massive risk assessment for the sport, which had to be approved by the government and approved by Public Health England and under all of this scrutiny. And we had gyms phoning us up saying, well, we're losing business. We're going to go under. We're going to have to close our doors unless you get this done. And I mean, you know, for a first rodeo, it was a little bit of a, (laughs) it was a real baptism of fire to do that. And um, we pulled on every network and resource that we had and working with medics and lawyers and doctors and um, experts in sport, all of whom were working pro bono doing this voluntarily for us because we had, you know, we're a startup, we had no income, um, but we knew that we had to do this. So it's been a real learning experience this last year, um, but what an extraordinary privilege to lead our sport through. And, you know, the other thing that I talk about um, when I talk about when I when people ask that about that overwhelm of developing policy and practice from scratch is it's also really exciting because we get to have an attempt at trying to get it right rather than retrofitting something onto something that already exists and trying to get buy-in from people we can start from scratch so we're developing a diversity and inclusion board and all of those people on that board will um, or that subcommittee, they'll scrutinise all our policy before it gets passed to make sure that it really is inclusive and diverse. And, um, you know, we will be making sure that safeguarding and child protection is a priority and how we do all of that stuff. And that's really exciting. Um, so it's a lot of work and it and I can't say that it hasn't been stressful because it's been insane, but it's, um yeah, what a privilege at the same time, for sure. Absolutely. That's so amazing. All right. Um, so I'd like to pivot one more time and talk about the real reason um, that I, I really wanted to interview you to begin with. I saw um, a post in one of the many Facebook groups, I can't remember which one, about your company, Squad Safe, which is it's also um, very important to me because the area that I coach in, um, my high school team, it's an underprivileged area and a lot of the kids 
you know, they don't have strong adults or, you know, and they're susceptible to things like abuse and, and things like that, you know, as, and being groomed and, and all of that, that comes out of like, unfortunately, bad people. Um, and that was brought to light during Athlete A, right? So I was really interested uh, just to talk to you a little bit. So could you explain um, what Squad Safe is? Yeah. So Squad Safe is a consultancy that I run. Um, which specializes in safeguarding and child protection for coaches working, coaches and athletes um, working in cheerleading, dance and gymnastics. And I set it up because back when I was working particularly with dance companies, I was um, an education manager for a lot of those companies. And my part of my job was to ensure that any dancers we had going out teaching were appropriately background checked, that they had done the right training. And the same when I was a program owner for a gym, I was responsible for the background checks and um, appropriate training. And what I found when I was getting people in to provide these training services was they were never quite adequate for the type of activity that we were delivering. So generally, the rule would be when you're training somebody in safeguarding and well, athlete welfare is don't touch kids right right. (laughs) Um, then then you would have these they do their training and then they'd come to me afterwards and say but joey then how do i spot a back handspring or how do i hold a child to help them find their center in a pirouette or how do i you know how do i do this work safely and so while the information they were getting wasn't bad information they were getting good stuff what is abuse what are the signs of abuse how do i report it It wasn't translating into a practical um, application for them back in the gym, like the real boots on the ground. How do we do that? And I realized there was this kind of disconnect between education and the culture that was developing in gyms or was being allowed to develop in gyms and studios because of just poor practice. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, when coaches and dance teachers don't understand poor practice, either you create a fertile ground for abuse to happen in or it can go unnoticed because everyone's just like you know not not behaving as they should and almost every time I would have this somebody come in and do this training I used to I used to spend an hour with the coaches or whatever afterwards actually doing the, the real stuff and then I'd be like oh, do you know what I should just start I should just write a course myself And I said this for years um, and I'm highly qualified to to do that. I've done a lot of safeguarding training. I'm what's called in the UK a designated safeguarding officer. So I'm qualified for all the kind of reporting procedures and talking to welfare and social services and all of that kind of stuff. I'd done that a lot, a long time. And it was actually, as you mentioned, seeing athlete A that was the real kick up my backside because I saw that and I was like, nobody's talking about this. Nobody's doing this. If it's not me who... Who is doing it? Um, and so I rang the people that I qualified all of my safeguarding training through and said, do I need any more qualifications? What do I need to do? Can I just write a course? And they supported me in um, being able to do that. And the course is now credentialed. It's a continued professional development certified training course. Um, and it's certified to global standards. So um, anyone anywhere in the world can take it. Um, and it's uh, a course where I deliver live in person or on Zoom. And, and I, I work with the whole gym. So it's not like individuals taking a course, doing a click through thing on a computer where it's completely dependent on their learn their own self-learning. We do it as a staff training and it's got loads of discussion in it. So it's not just about 
what would you do in this circumstance? How does this, how, how would you do this? How would you do that? We actually talk really specifically about their gym. Okay, if you were to go back tomorrow to your gym, what are the practical steps that you could do to improve the culture and the safeguarding and the welfare of the athletes in your care? Um, and so it's a real kind of practical application. So, uh, so that's the main part of what Squad Safe does is deliver now that training um, and then in addition to that I offer a couple of other courses one for um, athletes um, about keeping safe on social media um, one for parents about understanding how kids can keep safe on social media um, and then I do kind of policy advising as well because what I've found and particularly in other countries outside of the UK actually is a lot of them will have an athlete welfare policy written for their gym and they'll ask me if I'll look at I can look at it and it, it will be great. It will probably be written by a lawyer. Usually looks written by a lawyer. Um, and it's probably going to stop you getting sued, but it's not actually a practical application for dealing with stuff in your gym. And a, and a policy for your, a child protection policy for your gym should be like a manual that any of your coaches can pick up and look through and know the numbers to call, what to do in this situation, what your processes and your, you know, your procedures are for certain eventualities and so just helping guide gyms through that process as well. Um, and it's become, yeah, uh, I mean, my absolute hill I will die on, I think. Um, you know, people, more people need to be talking about this and not afraid to talk about it as well. There are gyms that I've spoken to who are scared to do this kind of training because they think if anyone finds out they've done the training, people will assume they have a problem in their gym. Do you know what I mean? And, and yeah. actually, it's the opposite. It's like if you're doing this training, you're demonstrating that you value the safety of the athletes. Um, you know, I hate to make a crass business case for it because it should just be that you want to keep your right. athletes safe. But but also, you know, it's good for business. Surely parents want to send their kids somewhere that they know they'll be looked after. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I feel like there is a culture of fear in discussing this kind of topic because um, even in my own personal history, I remember talking to an administrator of a school and she had said something along the lines of, be careful how many questions you ask, you are a mandated reporter. And I was thinking, Should, shouldn't I ask more questions then? Like, shouldn't we get to the crux of the issue? But it's like that fear of, you know, exposing something um, that people are don't want to talk about, you know? Yeah. And I think, I mean, I talk on my course about barriers to reporting, you know, there's lots of reasons why uh, a young person, an athlete um, will have a barrier to reporting something. But there's also lots of barriers to coaches reporting. Um, they're not good enough reasons, but there are a lot of barriers. And, you know, a big one of them is a fear of getting it wrong. You know, a fear of have I did I see or think, you know, is my concern valid? Um, I don't want to get somebody in trouble if it's if I've got it wrong. I don't want to, you know, damage the reputation of a gym. Those are understandable barriers to reporting, but we need to move beyond them because it doesn't negate the duty to report. Um, but I think it's important as part of the work that I do to acknowledge those barriers for people, you know, and acknowledge that there will be a lot of kind of emotional um stuff um, potentially you know brought up particularly if you have a um, sort of misplaced loyalty to a an a um, another member of your staff you know a lot of coaches are friends with each other and that can can bring up real challenges but we have to remember in all of this that we're our duty is to um, protect and look after those young people in our care um, yeah. yeah 
completely agree. So um, when I was reading through some of your services and offerings, I really did get excited to see the class called Your DMs Are Open because I feel like that is educating and empowering the kids, right? And that that's really crucial. Um, what does that course look like in the gym or, you know, in the school or wherever you're offering it? Yeah, so um, at the moment, it's a course offered on Zoom, um, which is great because we kind of screen share and we look at all kinds of social media apps. Um, but one of the things that um, I'm sure is universal in cheer is that our young people um, well, our young people in general are now more online than they ever were before. And online and offline are no longer two separate worlds for our young people. They are part of their identities. And so it's not like when the internet first started and everyone had a computer in one room in the house and you knew if you were on dial-up because no one else could use the telephone, right? And everyone knew what was what was on the computer screen. Um, and so we can no longer just say to young people, don't go on the internet, that's not going to happen. Um, right. What we need to do is to teach young people to um, be able to survive in the same way they do in the outside world. So they're going to make mistakes. Teenagers are going to take risks and we need to teach them to help. We need to help them make good choices and we need to teach them to be resilient because that's the same. You know, it's the same as if I'm sending my teenage daughter off to a party. I'm going to say, you know, be careful who you talk to, um, you know, don't drink this, that and the other. But I know that some of those things might happen. And so what are the ways that I can help my young person make good choices and be resilient? Um, so there's that which all young people have. And then there's an extra layer, I feel, for cheerleaders because there is this dynamic by which um, young people are encouraged to self-promote as individual athletes. Gyms will use social media to promote themselves. Young people are, um, you know, hungry for likes and popularity. And one of the things that comes up a lot as a result of that vulnerability in our young athletes is... Um, predators posing as brands, asking, hey, would you, we'd love for you to be a brand ambassador for us. In fact, we had this situation um, with a coach in the UK a while ago contacted me. Some of his athletes have been contacted by a, a brand in inverted commas. And they were like, oh, we want to send you sports bras and shorts to, um, to like pose in for your Instagram. Can you send us some pictures of you in your underwear so that we can get the right sizes? Um, you know, and it's about helping our young people recognize, you know, that no brand is going to be engaging with a minor for that kind of negotiation. They are certainly not going to be asking you to send pictures in your underwear. But you can also see that a young person, let's say a 15, 16 year old, would be terribly flattered that someone thinks I look like a model. And then they send the picture and then they realize that they've been completely duped and they're terrified and they've lost control of that image. Um, and so helping young people understand what to be a bit savvy about who's contacting them to understand how to block, delete, mute, um, how to look, how to manage bullying online. We look at as well. And a big thing that we do is um, the billboard test is helping young people understand if you put something on the Internet, it's the same as putting it on a big billboard in your city. Everyone can see it. It's there. What's your digital footprint? What does that look like? If I Googled your name, what's public, what's private? And getting them to think about think about that, um, you know, because I don't think they always recognize or think so think enough about 
how long something might be on the internet or when you lose when you lose control of an image. And we do cover some slightly more sensitive topics um, with the older athletes on that. So we'll cover things like sending nudes, um, you know, and um, the, the kind of things that may happen between teenagers consensually, but actually they still don't realize that there is an implication, mm-hmm. you know, you may think that that 16 year old guy that you're going to be with is going to be with you for the rest of your life, but no, he's not. And now he's shared that picture with the rest of your gym or whatever it is. And so, yeah, just really helping young people build resilience and make good choices. Yeah. I think that's great. I I really feel like that's probably the best way to sort of resolve this internet problem, right? Is to educate and empower the people who are living in it. And I find a lot of times that kids don't seem to get that it's, forever out there, you know, cause they're like, Oh, Snapchat's just, just one second. Nope. It's not one second. Like everybody screen printed it. I actually had somebody take a picture of a phone so that, you know, they couldn't tell who'd screen printed to send it to me. And I was like, this, this is it. It's forever. So if you send that one picture, you can't get it back. You know, you can't delete your account. It's out there. And yeah, I think that's absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think also helping empower young people, to to um increase increase their self-worth and self-value um internet matters which is a, an australian um uh, organization that looks at online safety did a um survey of a thousand young people last year and over 85 percent of them kept their dms open um, and their accounts public in order to get more likes and so we, do, we need to be talking to our young people and we have a, such an opportunity as coaches in our gym to say, you know, how can we empower these young people and increase their self-worth and their self-value so that they don't feel like they have to keep their, you know, accounts public in order to feel self-worth that way. Um, and I'm not saying it's easy, but I feel like um, there's lots that we can be doing in our gym to help um, increase um yeah, our young people's self-worth and value. Now, is that a class that you, or an offering that you do with the coaches present, or do you prefer to, to do it with just the athletes? So we've done it a number of ways, um, but I th- we, we usually have coaches on the line, um, but not parents, <laughs> because parents often... Um, they have to have permission to be in the class, of course. They have to have parental consent. But often young people may not say something in front of a parent. Perhaps if they're going to share something that has happened to them, they're unlikely to say that in front of a parent. Um, and I think that's an interesting bit of territory, actually, that I talk about when I talk about my training, because a lot of programs will operate kind of zero tolerance policies on certain things. If you're if you're an athlete and you drink alcohol, zero tolerance pol- policy, you're out of our gym. And I think zero tolerance policies are really good in some respects, but we need to be really mindful of how they might create barriers to young people reporting um, abuse. Um, so if a young person, for example, has been groomed and sent, um, tricked into sending um, nudes or, um, you know, pictures to somebody and then they felt that if they were to tell anyone they would be chucked off their cheer team we've created a barrier to to reporting there for them so um that's something that I talk to coaches about is just thinking about how they frame some of their policies in order to allow young people to share um and we do we do keep coaches on the line and I always prep the coaches and I say look at the end of this session 
there is a very good chance we're going to come off the call and an athlete is going to come to you and say, something has happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we need to be ready for that um, because it does throw stuff that, you know, bring stuff up. And um, there have been occasions when I've said stuff to athletes and I can see their faces on the call. And some of them, you can see them thinking, oh, my God, I've, you know, I've made a mistake here. Um, but but also like real life, you know, you make a mistake. Now you've recognized that. Here are the people, like, let's identify the people that can help you, the people that can support you, the choices that you still have. And there are always choices, even if some of them are really hard choices. There are still choices for you. And, you know, in many cases, things can be resolved. We can get things deleted from the Internet. We can report things. You know, I think um, people often um, kids feel that they now they've done something stupid, they can't go back on it. Um, And so hopefully these kind of classes um, empower them to to think more carefully, um, but also to to recognize that it's not the it's not going to be the end of the world, hopefully. So um, I have another question. So in watching Cheer on Netflix, which I'm sure everybody watched, it kind of brought to light the situation with Jerry, who was an athlete in a gym and was apparently, you know, grooming kids and doing all kinds of stuff to them. But he was an athlete, not a coach. So do you, you know, talk about how to identify those situations in your gym too and how to prevent them? Yeah, so I think particularly in the UK, we have on our senior teams a lot more um, mixing of minors and and over 18s because the sport is still relatively new. And a lot of particularly males, not that males are the only potential abusers, but particularly males come from university cheer. So they come to it later in life. But a lot of athletes come to cheer later in life life at the moment in the UK and so you do get this mix of sort of 16 year olds and 20 year olds on teams um, on the senior teams which I'm not I have my own kind of thoughts about the age grids and I, I think that that should change but I do understand why it is the way it is at the moment so when I work with gyms where they have um, adults and minors on teams together we talk about how we can manage that situation well Um, they are adults while they don't have technically a duty of care or responsibility in the same way that a coach does they do as all adults do have a duty of safeguarding you know we all do if you see a young person in a supermarket who's being abused by their parent you have a duty to you know safeguard that child and report it so though they those adults, athletes do have um, a duty. And so there are a couple of things that we, that I suggest that they do. And the first is that at the start of a season, a program will take their over 18 athletes um, aside and will communicate with them around safeguarding, around their responsibility, behavioral responsibilities, um, the expectations of the way they might communicate with teammates, because they shouldn't be um, direct messaging 60 uh, you know a 20 year old athlete should not be direct messaging a 16 year old athlete um, they are they are teammates but they are not friends um, you know they in, um, emotionally psychologically they're not in this a 16 year old and a 20 year old are not in the same place and it's not appropriate and it's a way to if you put those kind of policies in place to safeguard so some additional safeguard measures so we talk about the responsibility to talk to your athletes about those responsibilities so then when they are in the gym they're more aware of that and then the other thing that 
I did with one team which worked quite well. They had a co-ed senior team where they had older adult, uh, older males, sorry, um, who were kind of horse playing around with the, the younger girls and it was quite flirty and it was becoming, it was moving into inappropriate kind of behaviours. And so what we strategized with that team was that they would have some kind of code phrases. So if, if everyone was horse playing around and a coach said, hey guys, take it down a notch, all the adults in the room knew exactly what that meant. And it mm -hmm. meant you're stepping over a line, we need to take it back. Um, rein it back in so it was a way without making it too overly serious we're not taking it to the next level we're not kind of reporting anyone for doing anything inappropriate but we're just reining back in a behavior which is you know naturally going to happen between that age group but isn't appropriate um, and so kind of that when I talk about developing a culture in your gym that's one of those things that you can do you know how do we handle these situations and how do we set up good um policies and behaviors ahead of time to stop those things becoming problematic mm -hmm. um i think is is really important um you know cheerleading is one of those things that at the same time as people can think of it as being quite sexualized it can also desexualize situations because we're so used to just picking each other up and throwing each other around you know if if a guy scooped you up in his arms in any other circumstance than a cheer gym, you'd be like, what on earth are you doing to me? You know, but because we're so used to picking each other up, sometimes we lose a sense of our um, social boundaries and personal boundaries for each other. Um, and just making people aware, you know, recognizing what those might signify or be indicators to other people of if that makes sense. Yeah, that is. Thank you. So if, so I'm in a small gym, my gym, um, and I know I tend to partner up with other small gyms a lot on different initiatives like that. So is that something that gyms could do if, you know, cause everybody's watching their costs right now and trying to, to figure out what to do. But so like, I know you said that you work specifically with a specific gym, but if me and galaxy all-stars and, you know, supernatural all-stars, whatever came together, you would still be able to do a, a class that gets into their gym yeah absolutely so I have had um smaller gyms partner with other gyms and obviously there's elements that therefore become slightly less bespoke because you're talking about two gyms worth of kind of cultures or situations as opposed to one so but but absolutely that's um that's totally possible and I think that when I talk about how bespoke it is we're talking about things like so in the UK, and I know probably this is in the States as well, but we have lots of people that don't own their own gym. So we all have people that hire, you know, sports halls and things like that. And obviously what you can do if you have your own gym versus what you can do in the sports hall varies. So, you know, if you have your own gym, you can think more about accessibility for athletes or um, changing room spaces or provision for different things that you just don't have the opportunity to do. Um, but yeah, of course, I, what I tend to do though, is to limit the number of um, coaches on the call to 20. And that's because it's really important that every coach speaks and is involved in the discussion. Um, this is not a course where you can pass it if you sit quietly in the background, um, because I need to know that you've engaged, that you understand that there's comprehension. Um, I mean, at the same time, I caveat all of this at the beginning of every course with the fact that we're going to be discussing some tough issues. And some of these things may be triggering for coaches. 
You know, you may think that you know your staff, but actually they may have gone through stuff in their lives that makes some of the issues we're going to talk about really difficult. Um, and so I never force anyone to talk on a particular topic because it might be something that's personally affected them. However, I always then say, you know, so if there's something you can't talk about, when there is something you feel you can talk about, take that opportunity and engage. And um, I think that's the difference in this kind of course from like one that you just do online where you read some stuff and click through and do a quiz. It's, you, can, you can figure out how to pass a test, but this is about a deeper level of comprehension and, and doing something a little bit of deeper work in terms of thinking about the culture of your gym and the young people that you work with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So do you have a favorite um, or preferred service that you offer? <laughs> um, well, I absolutely love doing the training with the coaches. I love it because we always get to a bit at the end of the course where I make them evaluate what they do well already, because sometimes it can be really overwhelming. You do like the, the training is four and a half hours. You get all of this information and you think, oh, my God, we're doing nothing right. We have so much to do. We, we, we should be doing this. We should be doing that. We don't have this. We don't have that. And you can feel quite inadequate and you can forget that actually you're probably doing a lot of good stuff in your gym already and you just haven't you're not recognizing it. Um, so I love taking a moment with coaches to recognize what they already do well and to reinforce the fact that the fact they're even on the course is, you know, something to be celebrated. And almost every time I hadn't anticipated this when I wrote the course, but almost every time the, the program owner will cry because we go around and we everyone says, you know, oh, we do this really well and we're really compassionate with our kids and we do this that, and the other and we get to the program coach and she's like, oh, you said so many lovely things. <laughs> so um, so that's really nice and, and helping feel like I've empowered a, a gym to go back and be excited about this kind of work is great. But it's also really lovely doing the, the is my DMs open um or your dms are open course with with the young athletes because um again it's just that sense of being able to empower them and to have autonomy over their learning and their understanding and their bodies and to feel that they have choices and um and they and they're not alone is really yeah it's really exciting and a real privilege Absolutely. Well, I really applaud you. I think this is valuable work. Um, I I think the uh, way that you're putting it together, where it's not just a click through class, you know that that people are actually building a conversation and destigmatizing, you know, this particular conversation and safeguarding kids is just amazing. And I thank you for everything that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. So if a gym or a coach is interested or even a parent um, is interested in getting more information about Squad Safe or signing up for a class, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, so they can do that through the website, which is squadsafe.org. Um, and it's got all of their kind of services down there um, and like a form for, that they can communicate with me through. Um, and there's also loads of blogs on there. So gyms. Um, and coaches can get some some free information as well um, through some of those blogs about um, supporting the work that they're doing. Yeah, I did see the blogs kind of mixed in with different podcasts that you've been on as well. So people can listen to other podcasts and get more information as also about this subject. They can. Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. I think it was a good conversation. 
Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to to want to talk about the the child protection stuff because it's so important, and I think people are so scared to talk about it. Yeah, I agree. I think we we need to normalize the conversation, you know, yeah. so that because the damage is <laughs> it's just you know it's crazy. So yeah, it's it just it it just blows my mind how many times like how many times I hear about gyms just quietly letting go of coaches because they don't want the bad publicity as opposed to just taking care of the kids. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I hope you found it as informative and entertaining as I did. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at The Cheerleading Junkie, or find us on Facebook as The Cheerleading Junkie, or on Twitter at The Cheerleading One. That's T-H-E-C-H-E-E-R-L-E-A-D-I-N, number one. This is Jill Markley, The Cheerleading Junkie, saying see you next week.